Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Monday after the fire was declared a public day of mourning in Queensland as flags across the state were lowered to half-mast. It was terrible because of the community, but the community also came together. And I guess that's a sign of what it means to be an Australian. You actually come together in adversity, whether it's bushfires or floods. You actually come together and support one another. The fire had had an immediate and profound impact on the state's Premier, Peter Beattie. His mother-in-law was from Bundaberg, just half an hour up the road, and the sheer nature of this major tragedy had affected him deeply. Everyone was in a state of shock because not only had 15 people lost their lives, they were backpackers, but they were good people. They were part of the local community. They came in to pick fruit. I mean, backpackers were quite well supported in the local community. They weren't seen as being outsiders in the sense of being intrusive. They were there to support the local industry and the local farmers, and they were therefore well regarded. But people were just in shock as to what had happened. And as the days passed and as the events unfolded and people came to understand it was deliberately lit, it really did, I think, shock that that local community. And it's a real credit to them that they were able to stand up, go through the recovering process. He'd visited the town twice in the first three days and after seeing the devastation and anguish for himself, he used his daily press conference to pressure the airlines to support the victims' families abroad. I would hope that a number of the international carriers may come to the fore and provide free transport. Then he turned his attention to tightening up Queensland's fire safety legislation. It started with an immediate statewide blitz on public accommodation facilities. Annual checks were suddenly happening right then and there. Where they check accommodation sites such as backpack hostels once a year. However... Um, we've been now directed to, as a matter of urgency, to now go back to backpackers, uh, licensed premises where there is accommodation and carry out uh, full fire safety checks. Every alarm was tested. They've also asked us to uh, identify the occupancy that, that are in these um, type of establishments, uh, in particular counting of beds, etc. That audit was done on 263 of the 276 backpacker hostels in Queensland over the two months following the Childers fire. It uncovered a number of defects. In fact, the state's emergency services minister went on the record saying he considered about 10% of those to be serious. So the Premier set about fast-tracking new legislation into Parliament. And, and one of the outcomes was... It's, it's safer to go and stay in a backpacker hostel 
now. Absolutely. And, and, and under your watch, under the, your government legislation was put in place to make sure that happened. We were determined to do that. I remember, but well, I made it clear right from the beginning, one, there'd be no cover-up. Two, we'd find out what went wrong and if things needed to be done better, they would be done better. Because clearly there were fire alarms, but they'd been disconnected. A fire safety task force was established to review the fire safety standards in Queensland's budget accommodation buildings. It led to the Building and Other Legislation Amendment Bill being introduced in December 2001. Crucially, it ensured the new laws would finally apply to budget accommodation buildings built before 1992. Now, that in itself was significant. Remember, the palace had previously been exempt under the Building Act because it was built before 1975. These new changes would ensure that loophole would no longer exclude older dwellings. So we made it mandatory that there would be fire alarms in every house and uh, working fire alarms and uh, every unit, and they'd be inspected. And at the end of it, everyone understood that there was new rules and we had special rules for uh, boarding houses and you know as time went on of course there was a bit bit of bit of a pushback from here and there about these regulations because they took a little time to get the act properly done but look in the end everyone accepted that we now have safer places and so we should have it resulted in a in a good strong look at what was currently required and how legislative changes could be made to strengthen up that fire safety of the occupants. That's Inspector Mark Halverson. I'm the manager of the State Compliance and Prosecution Unit for Queensland Fire and Emergency Services. The legislation he polices 20 years on is because of what happened that night. Can you tell me what Queensland Fire and Emergency Services is doing to ensure that accommodation facilities like the Childers scenario, which had bulk accommodation facility for about 100 people. What are we doing to ensure that in the best possible way we can ensure their safety? So as a result of the Childers fire, that led to an examination of the required fire safety installations in that type of accommodation. And then those um, required installations were upgraded to be more onerous on landlords and the operators of these um, accommodation buildings to ensure the safety of the residents of those buildings um, was substantially increased. So those measures then became enshrined in legislation and that allows Queensland Fire and Emergency Services to inspect and then take enforcement action against the operators of those illegal and unsafe accommodation buildings. What's its mandatory obligation to be compliant? So the square meterage of the building and, and the number of people staying there do influence it. However, in general terms, they all need to have an, a system of early warning, which is your smoke alarm system. Smoke alarms need to be interconnected in the common areas and hallways, and there needs to be at least um, smoke alarm uh, standalone in the bedrooms or dormitories. Also requires a system of emergency lighting. So if during the night when a fire event occurs, people who are unfamiliar with the surroundings do have um, an avenue of lighting to assist them to see where they're going to escape. Also, quite importantly, they require to have a fire safety management plan. So that's a fairly comprehensive plan that not only details what is in the building, what's required to be there, it also has manufactured dates. It also requires a schedule for the routine servicing that's required and indeed has a, um, a laid out plan 
advising those occupants who may not be familiar with the building because they're transient, what to do in an emergency, how to escape, and where to meet as, at an assembly area outside of the building. Sadly, all the things that weren't afforded to the 15 victims and 69 survivors of the Palace Hostel fire in Childers. Does it disappoint you in any way that it wasn't done before a tragedy happened? Look, in a sense, the answer to that's yes. Um, you look back and you think, wow, why didn't we do that before? But, you know, we've come a long way. What we accept today in, in 2020 as standards were a lot harder in those days. Um, change is never easy, particularly when you mandate things. People don't like it when you say, you have to have a fire alarm in your house and it has to be a working fire alarm. And yes, somebody can turn up and inspect it. That sounds common sense now, but there were times when that wasn't the case, when people didn't want to have those sort of rules. So look, I'm not making excuses or, or saying that, you know, it shouldn't have been done. Of course it should have been done. And there shouldn't have been bars on the windows and there shouldn't have been a bed across a door. And there may have been less loss of life if that was the case. But we shouldn't forget the fact that there was an act of, of evil here, of bastardry of the worst kind that brought this about. There's a lot of things on that list that clearly identified that weren't part of that hostel in the coroner's report. So survivors talk about waking up, power's out, pitch black, can't see the hand in front of your face. Doors are stuck, can't get the doors open. So the handles, the exit signs, smoke alarms are three big ticket items really that clearly we've moved forward. Yeah, that's, that's definitely the case, yes. In the current day, if your team got a call from a, a backpacker and said, I don't think our smoke alarm is working and I'm concerned about this, what happens then? Yeah, so look, that's a, that's a very good question because indeed we do get complaints from backpackers who are living in the accommodation quite regularly. Uh, we have safety assessment officers located in all seven regions across the state. And while some of them still do have a significant distance to travel to get to an individual town or place, we can be very confident that we will have someone there to conduct an inspection in relation to that complaint in very quick time. And our aim is the same all the next day, but sometimes due to um, excessive travel, it may be a couple of days. Okay. So one of your team goes in, sees that building and says, yes, I'm not, I'm not satisfied that it's safe and these smoke alarms are working, what would they do then? Yeah, so those safety assessment officers are specifically trained in building fire safety and requirements. So they'll go collect evidence, that means taking photographs, looking at maintenance records, looking at the documentation that's required, and they will come back and compile a report. That report is then sent through to the State Compliance and Prosecution Unit. We'll assess what's been obtained in the evidence and move forward with the best course of action to take, A, to firstly ensure that we get that remedial action that's required immediately, and that may well be requiring the operator to put up some smoke alarms there and then on the same day as an interim measure to ensure that we've got some risk mitigation in place, but it will also include a required upgrade to meet all of the standards within a reasonable working time. Typically, that would be around seven days. And then we will also consider what further enforcement action may be suitable as in the infringements or going to a magistrate's court's prosecution. Our first aim is to try and work with the operators to ensure that safety is achieved. 
So if they said, yes, that's my client's not working, yes, this isn't safe, it wouldn't be unreasonable to say, I'm not leaving here until that smoke alarm is working and I'm satisfied that all the occupants here would be safe. So there are circumstances where we contact the actual owner or operator of that building and typically if it was during the day, we, through my unit, might issue a requisition requiring them to have the smoke alarms upgraded and installed by, for instance, 7pm that night when normal sleeping time would occur to allow them a few hours to do it we would, where possible, go back and conduct a reinspection to ensure that at least that minimum level of fire safety is there for the immediacy of that time. Okay. And there's precedent of that? Yeah, that's, that's not an uncommon occurrence. We can only hope the legislation and more rigorous checks do ensure we never see an incident like the Childers Fire again. But I guess the concern is it does still require hostel operators to be proactive, thorough, and most importantly, compliant. I mean, fire safety inspectors can't be in every building every day, which had me asking, well, who is the peak body for the backpacking industry? I phoned numerous likely accommodation groups and associations. They all had the fancy names and big titles which suggested it could be them, but none were claiming responsibility for the backpacking industry. Everywhere I asked, I kept being referred to a group called Adventure Queensland, which is essentially a member group of people who work in the state's tourism sector. They look after things like trying to enhance market growth and commercial viability and even set up networking events for its members. All the fun stuff, you could say. Compliance doesn't fall under them, and nor should it. The question is, who is taking responsibility when it comes to safety. There appears to be no peak body for the backpacking oh, industry. Um, th- there is an adventure tourism uh, association, but the demarcation between different markets has sort of blurred a little bit. You know what? Backpacker used to be genuinely people travelling with a backpack, <laughs> uh, staying in very cheap accommodation generally and having very little money to spend. I think those definitions have blurred. That's Daniel Gishwind. I'm the chief executive of the Queensland Tourism Industry Council. At the time, 2000, I was the state manager of the Tourism Council Australia, an organisation that changed and transformed into the current organisation we have only a few months after the tragedy in Chilis. I just see Adventure Australia seem to be taking care of the, the adventure side of it, the tours and making sure that experiences are... Yeah looked after but not necessarily the the compliance and the safety side of it yeah well, look i think we we uh, look we as an organization the queensland tourism industry council we certainly try to involve ourselves wherever it matters when it comes to legislation reviews or uh, business regulation we're very strong on business accreditation and business practices that is outside the actually legislated responsibilities we think we have to go further than that there's no doubt there is a gap in the system Now, so many sectors were adversely affected by the Childers fire, and Queensland's tourism sector was pretty close to the top of the list. Give me an idea of what the backpacking industry was like in 2000. It was big business, wasn't it? 
It was big business. It still is big business. And uh, we have to remember that Australia was the first country in the world to introduce working holiday visas as a category of uh, entry for young people in particular to uh, enjoy more than just a holiday in a place in Australia. Uh, it allowed visitors, young visitors, to uh, work while they were here on holidays and stay longer for a year. And that really transformed globally really transformed the youth travel market because it opened a whole new set of opportunities and it put Australia in a very competitive space and we were recognized as a, as a destination of choice for young people to enjoy those early years of their adulthood and uh, enjoy them in an environment that was safe and enjoyable and familiar and friendly. All of these attributes that supported Australia's position as a, a primary target and destination for young travelers. And 2000 was a golden period for the backpacking industry. To put that in context, Australia issued 78,000 working visas to foreign visitors in 2000. Just about all of those were backpackers, and more than half of those took up employment during their stay, especially on working farms in towns like Childers. Suddenly we had this opportunity to, to link in and hook in the backpackers who followed the same Harvest Trail. In fact, it was called the Harvest Trail. It still is maybe called the Harvest Trail. And suddenly the backpackers were taking up advantage of that, but also it gave the agricultural sector an opportunity to have a, a flexible workforce that was uh, available on tap, as it were. And uh, certainly the horticultural sector still continues to benefit from that enormously. The Australian government generated a study into backpacker accommodation in Australia back in 2009. It's almost a decade after the Childers fire, but it does provide a snapshot of what is essentially a multi-billion dollar injection into the Australian economy. With backpackers indulging in twice as many activities as other international tourists, spending almost twice as much money, and three and four backpackers spend time in regional areas. In fact, the stats show they were spending almost half of their Australian stay in the regions in places just like Childers. So what the tourism sector didn't need were international headlines like this. Good evening. A fire that swept through a youth hostel in Queensland, Australia, is now thought to have killed 10 young British backpackers. It happened in the small town of Childers, Australia. What was the immediate impact on the travel industry, particularly among that, that working holiday backpacker scene? Well, devastating is the only way to put it. You know, it was devastating for everybody who had any association with it, whether the travellers who were in the country or I'm sure those who were contemplating coming to Australia, that would have been an extremely uh, confronting news, but also for all the people in the industry who, who either provided services to backpackers generally or worked with them. Everybody felt somehow connected to that. You know, it, it was your friends, your customers, your associates who were suddenly in the frame, you know, and that was really difficult. And I think everybody felt emotionally affected by this in the tourism industry, for sure. Mm. Reputation's a big thing in the tourism industry, isn't it? And I assume reputation took a hit. Oh, absolutely. Look, I mean, the circumstances of this particular tragedy were confronting on so many levels. I mean, it, it was a crime, obviously, perpetrated in a targeted way at people we seek to attract to Australia and people who come here as our friends. And to 
see them targeted in such a crime was was devastating, of course. And then in the subsequent investigations, when it was revealed that perhaps the provisions, both the legislative provisions, but also the practices on the ground in this accommodation uh, house weren't up to scratch and didn't demonstrate duty of care to those visitors. That was another line of confrontation that was very difficult for us to deal with. So did Queensland's tourism industry take a hit on the back of that incident? Oh, look, I think the backpacker market certainly was affected by this, but an industry that is so much trading on its reputation and so much trading on the goodwill of people, uh, it, it absolutely had an impact. We, we know that for certain. You know, we, tourism is a very competitive market globally. Everybody's chasing uh, that visitor dollar. And the perceptions that surround a destination are absolutely critical. You know, you can put all the advertising out that you like and you can have all the services on the ground that you want. But if your reputation is not there, then consumers, travel, would-be travelers, make decisions every day. You know, you can, if you're in, in London and you decide where do you want uh, to either go yourself or say, perhaps send your children to, then clearly you, you have an image in your mind that is formed by events like this as well, or influenced at least by events like this. So your reputations can be destroyed overnight. The impact would be felt in the Childers Town Centre as well. The fact that the backpacker hostel was right in the middle of town, that so many people were staying there, meant that they really contributed to the vibe of Childers at that time. You know, they were constantly seen around town. They were in shops. They were in the pubs and hotels and that sort of thing. There was a really lovely atmosphere in town at the time. People felt like they they knew the backpackers. You know, they were certainly very recognisable faces around town. That's my friend Christina Ongley, and I reckon she's as well-placed as anyone to make comment on this. We worked together at the Bundaberg paper, and Christina was a young and very good reporter when the fire happened. She left in 2002, but came back as the newspaper's editor in 2009, put together a special 10-year anniversary edition, and was actually living in Childers at the time. You know, with the loss of that hostel, a lot of accommodation has moved to the outskirts of town. There's definitely a a, a different vibe. Um, It doesn't feel as though they have the same sort of presence as they once did. And I think one of the other changes over time as well has been there's, there's been a bit of a shift towards labour hire firms who will actually employ the picking workforce and, and farm workforce rather than being directly employed by the farmers themselves. So I think there's just that extra sort of layer of separation in between the, the workers and, and the employers that probably just means, you know, they don't have quite the same relationship as they did before. Wayne Say runs a surveying business only a couple of short windows up the road from the palace. In the days after the fire, he was called in by council to do some work inside the charred building. The stairs had just, just absolutely disintegrated. Uh, nothing left of the stairs, wooden stairs at all. But a metre, a couple of metres away, on the, the stuck on a French door window, was a piece of A4 paper that hadn't even been uh, burnt or singed or anything. It was, it was quite, yeah, quite unreal. 
But in more recent years, he was the president of the Childers Chamber of Commerce, and he saw firsthand what a dwindling backpacker market did to the town. The backpackers bring, apart from the vibrancy, they bring a lot of money into the town, to the uh, to the eateries and the hotels, um, and just uh, as I mentioned that vibrancy before, it it gives the town a really uh, a great feel about it, having the young people, the backpackers from overseas here. And it's, 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 it has come back, thank goodness. Right across the world, the Palace Fire has given Childers an identity it never asked for. I spoke to a local real estate agent. He said it certainly hasn't hurt sales. In fact, he reckons it probably led to more inquiries as people worked out. They're good people in those parts, and the town is pretty easy on the eye too. And then I remembered a story my dad told me from one of their trips abroad earlier this year. We were on an organised tour in southern India, and on our tour was a lot of um, people from England, southern England. We mentioned we were from Childers, and all of them knew about the Backpackers Fire. The same thing happened to us early uh, last year when we did a Holy Lands tour of Israel. Everyone on the tour knew what Childers was once we said we'd come from. It was all renowned for the Backpackers Fire. Even in India, it was being mentioned, 20 years on. The locals have tried their best to move on. I think the whole psyche of the town just just gradually tried to ignore it. And, and don't get me wrong, not everybody agreed with that building staying there. While that building sat there for all of that time, while a decision was being made on what to do with it, there was a lot of anger around here and pointed at, at people like, like me who'd been so involved and others, you know, let it go, we're sick of hearing about this and blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is it hadn't gone away. It was still being dealt with. And until that building was opened again and fixed up as well as it was, then there was, there was no way of getting back to normal. Small business did it tough for a long time afterwards wasn't good and it wasn't good afterwards because they had a fence across the footpath and there was just no one could walk up the footpath you had to walk out on the street. Ray and Doreen Cole's butcher shop was right next door to the palace. They were ordered to close for a month. Help was called in. We had a morgue in town for a number of weeks uh, which basically split the town into two. We had businesses each side of the palace that were looking at turning their toes up and going broke. We had to negotiate with governments to try and save them. They called a meeting. There was Peter Beatty and Bill Trevor and a lot of other government fellas, and they talked to us about what they could do or what they wouldn't do. And they actually came out here, Bill Trevor, and they just checked everything, and we ended up getting $5,000 for the four weeks that we were closed from the government, which was good. The state government sent highly regarded sustainability consultant Peter Kenyon to meet with business owners. I think state development paid for him to come up and you know and, and talk to some of the community, the council about what we could do to you know to help overcome the, the financial loss, you know, the economic impact on the town. Or as Peter calls it work with the business community on how we might get businesses and their tills ringing again. And bit by bit, day by day, the recovery just happened. Childers just kind of bandied together, looked after one another and made things right again. 
Yes, it was about what can we physically do about the main street, but it was also about how do we actually lift customer service? How do we actually develop that wow factor in each of our shops? How do we actually begin to network and effectively link with each other? How do we motivate our staff and engage our staff? How do we become more engaged with the wider community? And so I was really looking at what are those clues to fundamentally getting the tills ringing? Boy, it was an incredible experience. Well, you must look back on it and be so proud of your community. I guess when things like that happen, people usually react in one or two ways. One's a positive, one's a negative. You, know, you either see the worst of humanity or the best. And certainly, in my view, everything that happened after that fire, we saw the best, the best of humanity, not the worst. Legislation was toughened up, and that, in some small way, increased sentiment that at least all this tragedy would amount to change. Look, when a tragedy happens, you have to make certain that everything is done to ensure as much as is humanly possible that never happens again. And that was our job. And we tried to do that to the best of our ability. At least that's something to cling to for the families of the victims, like Julie O'Keefe's brother, David. Yes. Well, how many more lives have been saved by, by making it mandatory? What a waste, right? If you know we're, we're having this conversation, and you're then you start talking about some other hostile fire where, where more life is lost, yeah. and it's a very similar set of circumstances, and that's yeah, that that would be yeah, that would be terrible. It just, mm. But for the, safety measures the, to be the, implemented in any situation, like with yeah. seatbelts in cars, so many people have to be killed, and they realise seatbelts actually have to be put in cars. So it's unfortunate that tragedies like this have to happen in order for things to, to a tra- be put a, tra- in place. a tragedy is a truly a tragedy if nobody learns anything. That's, yeah. Yeah? That loss of life was absolutely awful. But you kind but of think imagine, as well, it imagine hasn't, she hasn't been forgotten. Like they've, something has come out of it. Like you'd hate yes. it to happen and then, like you say, yeah. just to be forgotten. To it be hasn't. Forgot. It's, or, or and no like lesson. you say, children has no, been no. written down in a lot of these like legislation um, papers and that. Like it's, it's very much the reference point for it now. Safety's improved because of the fire. So in some ways, maybe that saved lots of lives down the track. You know, in another twist of fate, you could say. How long do you think it took to rebuild the brand and restore the confidence of the consumer? Well, that, that it, it probably takes longer than most people can appreciate, you know, because these memories last sometimes a lifetime and the closer you were to these circumstances, I think people will never forget in many ways. Um, but, you know, we can but uh, work towards restoring that trust and that's an experience that is made every time a tragic event occurs. It takes away the innocence of the town and Childers will never, ever be the same again. But I like to think that Childers is stronger because of what did happen. And I think if you look back at what did happen, there was a strength there that none of us knew we had. And I have said that to people since. I didn't know that I could do what I did. But necessity is the mother invention and you've just got to do it. You're not going to leave someone sitting in a gutter crying just because you don't want to be bothered to go and hold their hand. You know, this was a turning point for it. It was not just a fire isolated. It had so many ramifications for not just Queenslanders but Australians and how we live. 
I mean, I look at a fire alarm now and I think of Childers because they didn't have the fire alarms on. And that's the reason so many perished as well. Are you confident 20 years on that it is safer to be a backpacker in Queensland than it was in June 2000? Yeah, I think I, I am more confident that it's safer for sure. Um, that's not to say that it, uh, uh, you know a crime in this case it was obviously a crime could not uh, be committed and and uh, you know risks still exist. I mean we can't ex- eliminate risk uh, completely, but yes, I think we have certainly from the lessons of Childers uh, put in place additional safety precautions that certainly have eliminated some and reduced other risks. Yes, I do believe that. Fifteen people died in the Palace Backpackers Hostel on the 23rd of June 2000, when Robert Long was sentenced in Brisbane Supreme Court. Justice Peter Dutney labelled it the worst arson attack in Queensland history. Since fire safety legislation was rewritten because of what happened in Childers, there have been no fire-related deaths at a public accommodation facility in Queensland. My thanks to everyone who has given their time to be a part of this podcast, to Zoltan Fecho for his work in editing, designing and composing this episode. It was written and produced by me, Paul Cochran. Please do me a favour and tell at least one friend or family member about the podcast. It was supported by the Bundaberg Regional Council who run the memorial to the victims of the fire in Childers. I strongly encourage you to go and check it out if you can. It really is brilliant. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.